Oh, Father, I'm, I'm so thankful to be here with your people. I'm thankful that we get to turn our attention to you and specifically how you interacted with this dear woman and these scribes and these Pharisees and anyone else who was watching. And Lord, we get the opportunity to, to watch and to interact with you this morning through the Holy Spirit and your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us that your, your steadfast love, it literally is better than life. It's better than all that we can imagine or think or comprehend. And that you have given in each interaction with everybody, Lord, you, you're constantly revealing the gospel, the good news, that you are king and that you have come to redeem and restore and resurrect everything. And so show us that, Lord. Show us that in your perfect justice and mercy. Show us that in, in the particular ways in which we are all inclined towards moving away from grace as opposed to moving towards it. And show us the beauty uh, of your son Jesus right now. In Christ's name, amen. So if, if you do have a Bible and you look in the passage that Indra just read, you'll, you'll notice that there is a, uh, a note that says, not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's the section that we read, that this part of the Gospel of John is not actually in the earliest and what many scholars call the best manuscripts of the canon of Scripture. Now, many people have uh, argued over where it should be placed, whether it should be in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of Luke, some think. Some even think that it's an, uh, a later trend, uh, edition by the early church and shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture at all. Now, this was something that really uh, blew my mind and made me afraid when I was first um, walking with the Lord Jesus and being a, being a Christian. Um, but what I want to do with that detail is set your mind at ease that there, is no, there are no textual variants that we have of Scripture that actually affect the Christian message of the Bible. And so you can hold different views on this particular section of the Bible and still be an Orthodox Christian. Many, many Christians throughout the centuries have had various opinions on this particular text. The reason why we're looking at it today is because of this little mini-series that we're in in the month of July where we're talking about the, the ability that the gospel gives us to be mentally stable and to be emotionally stable in, in a broken and fallen world. And the way that Jesus interacts with this, with this woman, what he's doing is that he's addressing a question with this woman that roots us in how to be spiritually, emotionally stable in this life. And, and here's the question that he's addressing. What do I do with my shame and failure? What do I do when I feel uh, exposed by my community? When something is exposed in us or about us that we don't want others to see, the reason why that feels torturous to us is because we were made, if you were honest at all, um, you were made for some, somebody, an outside voice, to look at you and say, I am delighted in you, I am pleased with you, I love you, I, I affirm you, and when we don't receive that and when we receive the opposite, like what this woman is experiencing, it can wreck our lives. It can just totally destroy us if we don't have Jesus. And what I want you to see is the geniusness of how Jesus 
interacts with this and how he navigates us through it. And we're going to look at that, kind of weaving in and out of these points. The shaming of others and how we handle that. The shaming of self. And then the shield for shame. Those are the three points we're going to be talking about. So within, um, within shame and honor cultures, it's very easy to recognize what's required in order to attain honor and what you have to avoid in order to feel shame. So I remember I have a dear Korean friend of mine, and he was explaining how in his family, um, the, reason, the reason why he became a Christian was because of this doctrine of adoption. And the reason why is because he said, in my family, there was not an option to like fail at school or fail at career that I would, I would be shunned by my family and shunned by my community. And so failing in any realm was not really uh, a, a, an avenue that I was even going to consider because I would, I would die if I, if I couldn't um, go back to my family. And, and so what he said is like, when I heard that I could be a part of Jesus's fam- family, the, the family of God through Jesus, I was like, I don't even think that's possible. That I can be a part of, of God's family without like showing that I've lived up to the standard was, was mind-blowing to him. And what he realized in that process is that his whole life had been driven by the shame of possible failure. Now, in the West, like our particular culture, we have, um, without much success, what we have said on the whole is that we don't need an outside voice. We don't need anyone to affirm us. We can just look inside, and what we do is that we as individuals look inside, and then we go out into our communities and demand that our communities conform to us. And what that's created is, and you guys have experienced this, cancel cancel. Uh, Cancel culture. There we go. In mass, um, the the inability to have coherent exchanges of ideas without feeling horribly threatened if somebody has a different opinion than us, because our opinions have become core to our identity, and so we can't take sharpening. And I, I think what this passage shows us, you know, Steve Brown. Steve Brown uh, says, in our, in our cultural moment today, we, we are all a bunch of porcupines trying to hug each other in the midst of a hurricane. <laughs> and I think, the, y'all, the beauty of what Jesus does in this text is that he, he takes a community like this that's so used to shaming each other, that's so used to backbiting or exposing the worst aspect of a person and, and in the act of doing something that, that would have canceled her and shamed her for life, Jesus shows us the way forward. Jesus shows these scribes, these Pharisees, and this woman how to move forward in the midst of a community like that. And so these Pharisees were, um, they get a bad rap in Scripture, but you know they were the gatekeepers of the culture of the first century. They were... They were respected. Um, and they come to Jesus while he's teaching in our text. And they produce, this is what they do. They produce a high pressure situation out of their conviction of what they thought was right and biblical. 
Very important. They produce a high-pressure situation out of their conviction of what they thought was right and biblical, and they saw themselves as leaders of their community. Many people saw them as leaders of the community as well. And they use scripture to back their outrage up. And this is what they said. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually in the scripture what they say, except it reads a little different. And I'm going to read you that the text is from Leviticus 20, verse 10, which is what they're citing in our text. And this is how Leviticus reads. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You hear the difference? Who wasn't there? The man, right? One of the main problems is that they didn't bring the man. You know, every it's very, very easy to look at any culture and like judge it from our perspective. But one of the one of the blind spots of the first century was that women were not treated equal, equally with men. Their words were not as valid in the courts of law as a man's was, and even these Pharisees clearly thought that this woman's sin was, was worse than the man's, or they would have brought him, and they did not see that this was the same exact, exact offense to God and society. And here's, here's how that happens in a community. Here's how it happens. They had separated the world up. You guys have heard me say this. They separated the world up into good and bad people. And they did not see themselves on the bad side. And what that produces is the inability to empathize with a victim, with an abuser, with a bystander who doesn't do anything about the sin. And they place themselves on a side that says, we are not like her. And so do something about it, Jesus. Here's what the scripture says. And within that framework, Jesus comes into the midst of that very high pressure situation. And he says, I have space for those who have been canceled. I have space for those who have who have given themselves over to dysfunction and are experiencing lots of shame. I have space for victims. I have space for abusers. I have space for bystanders. And Jesus' invitation is perfectly seen in how he interacts with both sets of people in this text. Verses 7 through 9, one of the things that catches you off guard about this story is how nonchalant Jesus is. You know what he's doing? He's playing in the sand. They come to him, he's like, you know, do something. And, and like, he's playing in the sand and he drastically changes their tune by asking one question. And everyone is so highly charged in this story and Jesus just isn't. We can learn a lot of that. Just how calm he is in a very high pressure situation. Verse seven, as they continue to press him, they're trying to get an answer out of him. He says, let him who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. This is genius. Genius, right? 
Like he's a genius. I know he's God, but he's also a genius. I, I was discussing this passage with a small group once, and a woman said about verse 9, she's like, what's interesting to me is that after he said that, did you notice which persons went and walked away first? It indicates it in the text. It was the older ones, the older Pharisees. Why is that? It's because age humbles you. Because as you get older, this is my limited experience, as you get older, what you begin to see is like, oh my gosh, like some of the things that I thought I was doing for God, some of the things that I, I thought I was doing for good were actually very, very selfishly motivated. And as you get older, your, your view of your own sin grows. And you're like, oh, okay. And what you realize over the years is how kind God has been to you. How patient he's been to you. And here's the beauty of how Jesus can work in the midst of that. As your view of your own sin grows and you have Jesus in the midst of that, what also grows is grace. And your heart for others grows. And your patience for others grows. And your patience for the the slow way in which we grow becomes settled. Now, here's how you know if you've begun to experience God on this level. Do you find yourself often condemning others in your head? Do you find yourself often condemning yourself? Do you find yourself all the time saying, after you fail, you're such an idiot? I don't think that's the voice of our Lord Jesus. If, some, if somebody exposes something about you or, or critiques you, does, does it just demolish your day or your week or your month? Do people have that kind of power over you? The gospel, what it does, it can bring those voices into a whisper instead of a yelling match in your head and in your heart. It really can Most of us know how lethal it is when others condemn us unjustly. We all all can kind of see that. What what we've not given much thought to is how deadly our own voice can be to ourselves. That you, you are the most influential person in your life because you speak to yourself more than anyone else on earth. What are you saying to yourself? How are you speaking to yourself? Are you letting the words of Jesus inform that voice? I'm sure that this woman did not need any more help shaming herself. I bet she knew. You know, you know you've met the real Jesus if when you really mess up, you feel closer to him, not further away. Jesus is showing us here that there are two main ways to avoid the gospel It's shaming yourself by living a continual life of sin and harm, which is what this woman was doing, or shaming others like these Pharisees and separating the world up into good and bad people. And how how do we combat this in ourselves and in our communities? And this is where John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, is absolutely helpful. He wrote letters to many people in his congregations and in his communities. And he has this famous way of talking about there's this thing that can happen as you, as you grow in the, in the Christian faith. 
you can have sort of like an aha moment, another uh, realization that the gospel is for you deep into the Christian life. He calls it stage three of the Christian life. And this is how he, how he describes it. He's describing a Christian in the later stages of conversion. But when, after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, these, these are Christians, okay? Deceitful hearts. After repeated proofs of their weaknesses, a Christian actually finds that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus becomes, in that moment, more precious to their souls, and they begin to love much because they have been forgiven much. They conclude they must have died a thousand times if Jesus had not been their Savior, their shepherd, and their shield, and there's an experience of it. What ultimately separates you from God, y'all, is not how sin manifests itself in your particular life. It's pride. It's the, it's the saying back to God, I don't need you, and I can do it my, my own way. I'm good. And we can refuse Christ through trying to be good enough, like these Pharisees, or we can refuse Christ by doing whatever feels good to our bodies, like this woman. But both are very strong ways of avoiding what we just sing, coming face to face with Jesus and actually sitting in how much he loves us and letting that transform us. And the key to how you come into this is through pain and suffering and through criticism and through shame, shaming yourself and hearing the shame of, of what others put on you and, and coming to Jesus and saying, I need you. I need you to quiet me by your love. And if we refuse to sit in how much God loves us, we will be incapable of facing ourselves or facing other people or facing God, which is what you were made to do, to bring your face to those avenues. And it's in our, you know, the, the New Testament talks about when, when the New Testament says flesh, it's not talking about your body. It's talking about the system inside each human being that is very averse to God's grace and kindness and his love. And the flesh of a human being is that part of you that says, I don't need anything. They're wrong. I'm right. I can do it my own way. So I'm going to get mine or I'm going to judge other people. That's the flesh. And that's what God has come to kill to demolish. And this is how he does it. At the height of this, in, in verse 11, at the height of this woman's shame being exposed in front of everyone, which was terrible, and there was evidence that she should be canceled and killed. Verse 11, what does Jesus do? Instead of exclusion, embrace. He doesn't condemn her. Hmm. And he's so remarkably, remarkably balanced. He says, you know, I, I don't condemn you, but, but stop sinning. <laughs> That's not who you are. He doesn't make light of her lifestyle. He doesn't say, you know what? You deserve this. You do you. You make yourself happy. Follow your heart. He doesn't say that. He says, look, I'm not going to let your sin get in the way of me loving you, but don't don't continue on in this lifestyle. It's harming you. It's harming other people. 
And now, I, I like to imagine this woman at that point, you know, she's got a choice at that moment, doesn't she? She has the same choice as these Pharisees. And the, the question is, do you want to be loved by this man? Do I want him? Do you want to be pursued by Jesus? That's the question, isn't it? I, I want to address something real fast. I want to get back to that. I know, I know some in here might be thinking, oh, wait a second, what about those passages in Revelation and other parts of Scripture where it says that, like all these types of people, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to read you one of those passages. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to ask you a question. Um, have you ever looked at something that someone else had and you wanted it just a little too much? Have you ever, um, you didn't even have to say it out loud, but ha have you ever thought about somebody and you're like, man, that person's an idiot. That's what it means to revile somebody. Have you ever thought about something in this life just for a moment and thought, that's going to please me and give me peace? That's the heart of idolatry. The reason why Paul writes these lists and other parts of Scripture writes these lists is because he wants to infuse into the heart of humanity who can stand? Who can stand before God? That's right. Except one. That's why Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you are united to Christ. And here's the beautiful part. <laughs> that there's an advantage, y'all, to the remaining dysfunction and sin left in the life of the believer. Here's the advantage. It keeps you close to Jesus. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to kill sin. It does not mean that you shouldn't do everything in your power to put it to death. But that's how Jesus gets glory. That your weakness, your thorn, that thorn in the flesh that Paul talked about is like, this is what keeps me close to the Lord. And you see it perfectly in the story. That there's an advantage when we see ourselves as totally broken. There are no, you know, you don't fight back. It's like, yeah, people accuse you, yeah, you're right. But Jesus wasn't. Let his words cover you and let that word that he speaks over this woman be spoken over you. There is no condemnation for you. I, you know, I, I really can't, I can't get over how he responds. I, I wish I knew what he was scribbling in the dirt, you know. <laughs> I just imagine, you know, him just being so, so calm. Um, and he's probably thinking about his own destiny you know there's going to be he's probably thinking there's going to be an angry mob around me who wants to kill me one day but no one's going to speak up for me no one's going to step in the way of their accusations against me at least with this dear woman and 
She had sin, but Jesus didn't have sin. He did nothing wrong. From the moment he was born until he died, he just loved people. That's it. And he loved God. And this is what humanity does to that. They kill it. We kill it. We smash it out. And through that, the salvation of the world comes into being. And what we learn as the life of Jesus unfolds is that he is the only person in the world that even has the right to condemn us. And he doesn't. It's, that's what, what this means is that it's impossible for God to be disappointed in you forever. You know, people are disappointed in us. Like, it's terrible, right? And God says, I, I'm, I'm not. I can't, actually, if you believe in my son. It's an impossibility, a theological and experiential impossibility for God to look at you and be disappointed if you know Jesus. That's scary. Because we'd rather have like a give and take, you know. <laughs> we'd rather like earn a little bit. That's the flesh. You gotta kill it. And here's my question for you right now. What do you do with grace? The number one way you know this is starting to take root in your life is how, look at how you treat other people. Examine it. How much grace do you have for other people who disagree with you, who annoy you, who get under your skin? How much grace do you have for your family members? That one family member, you know that one? What are you doing with that in your heart? If you ever look at someone and say, how could you possibly be so blind and such a bigot? How could you live in such rebellion and destroy your community, woman? You know, that's what these Pharisees are saying. When those thoughts begin to be replaced with God, the only thing that separates me from my enemies and me from the worst person that I know is your grace. That's it. That's it. And then when you begin to say, I wonder what pain that person experienced that led them down that path. That's how you know that the gospel is beginning to work in your heart when you begin to empathize with, with how they've been hurt. It's not excusing any action, but it's, it's seeing them, uh, trying to see them from the eyes of how God sees them and giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's when you know you begin to encounter the real Jesus, when your patience and love for people that you don't understand increases and you stop judging people because you don't have a right. Only Jesus has the right and he doesn't. He doesn't judge when he could. And the only way he'll judge is if you say, I don't want you. Get away from me. Now, here's how you may, we'll close right here because, you know, that can sound good, but like, how do you, how do you make that a practice? Because you, you leave here like me and you think like, yeah, that, the love of God sounds great. But like, if I'm completely honest, like I don't really experience that often. And so how, how can I? I would like to experience it more. Um, that's the beginning, by the way. And then... I would, I would encourage you that if you want to experience the love of God, I know this sounds radical, but like, ask Him. Like, really ask Him. If you want it. Psalm 85 says, Show us your steadfast love, O God, and when you do, it's like justice and peace kissing each other. 
That's what it's like. There was once a woman uh, named Teresa of Avila who was asking God for an experience of his love. And she was very hesitant to write about this, but the church kind of forced her to do it and made her. And this is what she said happened. And she, again, she did not want to write about this, but she was forced. She said that she saw an angel coming towards her and he had a sword and he began to stab her in the heart with the sword. And this is what she said. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart to pierce my entrails. And when he drew it out, he seemed, he seemed to draw them out as well and leave me all on fire with the great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan. It was a caressing of love so sweet. And I pray, God of his goodness, to make him experience it who thinks I'm lying. During the days that this lasted, I went about as if beside myself, and I wished to see or speak to no one, but only to cherish my pain, which was, to me, greater bliss than anything I have ever experienced in creation. The pain. How'd she get that? She asked. Through the gospel, uh, we can bear when others shame us. We can face our own shaming voice when we let Jesus' words have the last say that there is therefore now no condemnation. And you can actually, as a human being, be open to the love of God, which will ravish you more than anything else in creation. Um, that is the heart of mental health. That is the heart of what Brianne shared. This is what she's bringing to the campus. This is what all our campus ministers bring to the campus of UNL. This is what we need to bring to the city. The gospel of Jesus that breathes life and love into a broken world. And we are to do that as broken people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that um, we, would, we would see ourselves. There, there is no shame, Lord, uh, with you. That we would see ourselves as the scribes or Pharisees. That we would see ourselves as this woman. That we would see ourselves as the not-so-innocent bystanders of a situation like this. And that we would run to you. And, Lord, uh, make us brave enough to ask for your love, for the experience of your steadfast love, which is better than life. And Lord, um, help us to see that at this table,
wanna love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us. We wanna love like you, love like you, love because you first loved us. We wanna love like you.